welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us back today for a second bite of the apple is Karen Webster. Karen is a GP primarily, but she also works in the Fourth Valley Emergency Department as a senior specialist and is the Fourth Valley GP out of hours clinical lead. She's one of our teachers and does a lot of teaching both face-to-face and with the adult and paediatric teleeducation program. Karen, thanks so much for coming back to chat to us. Delighted, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Today, we're going to look at one of those subjects that absolutely makes my heart sink and my trousers turn brown. Uh, We're going to look at deteriorating children. Where do we start? Oh, absolutely, Dave. And you are not alone there. And I think this is one of these subjects that raises concern most individuals. And we all wish we could have more experience and training. And I think the key things that we want to be thinking about is that we are not alone here. If we have a structured approach to our young people, then we will be able to get the clues that they're giving us. The thing that concerns us, of course, is that children, although beautiful when they're healthy and happy, they can unfortunately mask sometimes the fact that they're becoming unwell. And it is about that recognition before those compensatory mechanisms fail. And those are the key things that we want to look at and identify. And certainly, although we're not going to be able to go into it in huge depth, because I'd be here for a week, we do want to give you some useful hints and tips just to make your approach to children a little bit more confident and allow you to have those discussions with your colleagues that will help you with your management of these children. So I guess that's the thing with adults. You've got a generally a progressive system failure that you can pick up on and you've got things like early warning scores that you can see a trend and they misbehave slowly and progressively. But with kids, it feels like they potter along, not really giving as much of a clue that they're about to do something pretty spectacular. Absolutely. And that is testament to the fact that the body has developed over thousands of years into the great vessel it is at the moment. And that means that especially with the the younger person who has lovely elastic vessels, who can mount a response to reduced fluid volumes from whatever cause, who can cope and respond to the insults thrown to them, reasonably well until they get to a point where just everything fails and we talk about falling off the cliff and so we want to catch them on the journey up to that cliff but hopefully stop them coming off the end and and very much like your adults we still want to use our pediatric early warning scores which are developed so that they have the values for the specific age of child that you're looking after but we have to also be aware of other factors. So we need to take into account how have they been in the preceding days to weeks? How are they just now? And what do we think is going on so that we can predict? And this is a difficult bit is trying to predict what is going to happen in the future. And this is where your serial observations are really useful to help with this and can improve our assessment of these children. And also 
if we don't end up admitting this child also to the person who comes after us if this child continues down this path and is reviewed at a later period. I guess it's kind of picking up on some of the things when I walk into a room responding to a treble nine call, I've been there for seconds, whereas mum, dad, guardian, parent, whoever it is, has been there for hours, days, months, years. And I guess they've got that wider picture. Absolutely. And I think that is the key here. We are taking a snapshot in time and we have to reflect that to how has this child been, especially with things like fever, because we all know that a nice journey in the car, etc., may have brought that temperature down. But that does not mean to say that they haven't been sitting up in the 39s, 40s for the preceding day, couple of days however long. So it is about listening and getting those cues from that guardian as to what are their concerns? What is it that made them call 111, call 999 today? Because they know their child and they know when something's not right. And we need to listen to that. Indeed. Now, with adults, I have kind of in my head the normal physiological values pretty well nailed down. With kids, they're not really there so much. And you mentioned cues, but how do we work that out in practice? Yes. And I think because trying to remember off the top of your head, what is the normal heart rate for a five-year-old? What is the normal respiratory rate for a two-month-old? And that can be really, really challenging. So it is having some form of reference. Now, certainly what I have done is I've developed an Excel spreadsheet that has these values. And again, the nice thing about the paediatric early warning score is it assigns a number value to these parameters so that you can get a gauge of where you're sitting with regards to the child in front of you. Certainly, we know that if you've got a score of above four, that we are concerned about this child and we want to then make sure that we've done that thorough assessment. So whatever we find is consistent with the parameters that we've measured. Also, what I really like about the paediatric early warning score is that they've got a red box of of red flags. And at top of that is that gut feeling. And I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that that child that we walk into the room and go, oh, dear, your brown trouser moment, as you very rightly mentioned at the top of the show, Dave, is that one that we need to listen to, that that one where our gut clenches and we go, there's something not right here. I'm not exactly sure what. So even if the numbers are normal, you need to listen to that voice and either have a low threshold for review or discussion with paediatric colleagues to say, look, I'm not sure what's going on, but we need to observe, we need to do something further with this person in front of us. I must admit, I guess a little bit of a shout out to the ambulance service colleagues. JR Calc is wonderful in that that age for a page section at the back of JR Calc means that you've got a really quick go-to normal respiratory rate, normal sort of observation values. And equally, you turn the page over and you've got all the drug doses pre-calculated for you, which when my brain is doing a million different things is a huge bonus. You're absolutely right. And that comes very much down to those human factors things, because we're all aware of those moments when we just feel so anxious that it's difficult to remember our own name. So anything that makes that easier, any form of aid memoir or reference is is going to be so, so important. And I think the lovely thing with JR Calc now is absolutely our paramedics have them, but you can get the app for your 
media device. And again, it's about thinking ahead, like anything in kind of urgent or emergency care. It's about that pre-planning. It's about saying, what might I encounter and how do I prepare for that? And very much like if we were attending an arrest situation, where you would have the algorithms available, this is the same. It's about saying, well, what information do I need so I can manage this child effectively and efficiently? Let's kind of walk through a little bit of a a scenario, I guess. Mm -hmm. So we come into the room, mum's there, she's worried, she's got a small bundle of upsetness in front of her. (laughs) Just talk me through a stepwise assessment of how you would approach, let's say, a one-year-old kid. As we know... Some kids love us, others just don't want us in the room. Uh, And that's understandable. Very much it is that the same as we do with any situation, it's that first encounter, that first impression. Is the child taking in what's going around, eyeing you up, even if it's the evil eye, that's okay. It's about how alert is this child, because that'll give you that initial worrying concern if they are very floppy or unresponsive. But hopefully they are alert. And then you are then going into the, almost as you're taking the history, your eyes are on the child, trying to gain these cues, listening to their airway to say, what concerns have I about this child's airway? Very much what you're wanting to do is say, is there any signs of obstruction there? Is there something from the history that I've been given that would suggest that this is going to deteriorate? And again, trying to gauge the rapidity of onset of symptoms, because we know something that's come on gradual, we've got a little bit more time with something that's changing rapidly. We need to increase our level of concern and do that rapid kind of primary assessment. With regards to airway, if we say for a one-year-old, certainly what we're seeing a lot of at the moment is seasonal is our croup or our bronchiolitis. And certainly thinking of airway, you're probably thinking kind of croup. And we need to say how much compromise is this child suffering from this and what can we do? So again, just to bring in a little bit of treatment, we're recognising that the child with an airway issue can tire. So how can we improve that? We know that our standard treatment of croup is our, our kind of dexamethasone, but if we are acutely concerned, we can think about things like nebulized adrenaline. And the key is treating what you find as you find it. So it may be that you recognize that there's something going on, but at this moment in time, you can't do anything about it and you can carry on with the rest of your assessment. It may be that if there's respiratory distress, again, putting on the oxygen early. Trying to count respiratory rates, although tricky, is actually really quite important because, again, that is part of our assessment. It can be one of these early markers that a child is struggling. So, And especially with our very young child, so that one-year-old, that under one, they will get very tired if they're having to breathe very fast and they don't have big energy reserves. So very much we're wanting to fully expose the child if at all possible so that we can say right what are the effort of breathing and looking to see those signs so the classic kind of head bobbing in our infants that intercostal recession signs that that really they're working quite hard the respiratory rate is elevated and then seeing how effective it is so it's about that translation into effectiveness So making sure that we've got good air entry into all areas, doing some percussion to make sure there's no dullness to percussion to suggest, again, consolidation for whatever reason. 
The difficulty can sometimes be with our bronchiolitis child who can have quite a nasty sounding chest. And it's putting that into context with how tired the child is and also trying to get oxygen levels. Now, you'll be as aware as well as I am that that can be quite tricky in a young one. And this is where having the right pulse oximeter makes the biggest difference in that we know that you can't really use an adult pulse oximeter on an infant. So if you have the tape ones, that's preferential. Or with the, the OxyPen, you can get a paediatric attachment to that. So it, it's have a think about the oximeter that you're using. I would also encourage if you can pop it on early because it will take a minute or two just to settle down. The other beauty of that, thinking about the deteriorating child, is that you can see what happens if the child does become upset because I can guarantee you once you start listening to that child's chest, if they've got the energy, they may well become upset. And you can see what happens to that oxygen levels because it might be that while the child is settled and at peace, saturations are sitting at 96%. You think, okay, that's all right. But if they then become upset and they desaturate and their saturations fall below that 94%, we need to be concerned and we need to then think, what are we going to do with this child? So again, it's all markers so that we can get that bigger picture around this child. I guess it's building on the fact that their reserve is diminishing to the point that they can't can't sustain a good ball in my face when I'm trying to listen to them. Absolutely. You're totally right. And it's the one time that you're reassured by this loud cry that's got good volume behind it. The cry, of course, that we get very concerned about in our infants is that kind of almost cat's meow, that kind of high pitch, that really poor volume poor effort kind of cry. Absolutely, you're totally right there about the tiredness developing, which we don't like. And again, it's that urgent, this child needs support. This child, you need to prepare to support their breathing because they are getting knackered, the poor things. I love the idea of getting on early SATs probes. I have to say that generally speaking, they're off within nanoseconds unless the kid is properly big sick and it's always a bit of a worry if the if the sats probe stays on the finger then something's up absolutely and this is it you want them to almost be pulling it off certainly what i i tend to do in the, the younger child when you can get away with distracting them is if you put it on their foot and then pop the sock over the top and then they can't see it and that's almost the beauty of you can catch that golden age you know up to about 18 months when they just ignore it so you just hide it <laughs> <laughs> and that works nicely. <laughs> Good to know. We've approached the patient, we've done a, a quick airway, we've decided we're going to slap on some bonus oxygen and we've had a, a look, listen and potentially feel of the chest. It seems to me that sick kids' chest is often where the pathology is or at least where the symptomology is. Yes, probably because the child's airways are significantly smaller. And of course, they get a bit bigger as they get older. And that's when we see less of the issues. Really what we want to be thinking, you know, is there mucus plugging in there? If we can go back into our physics days and think about flow and, and laminar flow and all that nice stuff, I'm not going to go into that tonight. You'll be glad to hear but absolutely that can have an effect on their ability to breathe and make their chest sound really quite bad. And what we need to do then is think about, right, is there something I can do to improve this? If we've got concerns about that air entry, listening to it being noisy, being coarse, wrong high in there. And also, you know, we can bring in our asthmatic kiddies as well in there, people with other kind of respiratory history 
We have our children that have previous spells in the neonatal unit or other kind of chronic bronchitis conditions. And again, you know, do we need to think about a nebulizer to open those airways? BTS have fantastic guidelines, as you're well aware, for our management of our asthmatic patients and looking at our risk factors as part of our history. And that's going to guide you on your likelihood for deterioration. Is this a child who normally gets viral wheeze that settles in between times? Or is this a child who's actually been hospitalised a few times, who may have needed higher level care? And we're going to have a much lower threshold for transferring that child early. And hopefully these children would have a management plan. Again, listening to the guardian, we hopefully know the best way for their child and what's happened to them previously, which will then increase our level of concern appropriately for the, the management of this episode. Yeah, certainly in my albeit limited experience, getting the Guardian involved in trying to weld the nebulizer onto the face and trying to attach the child to any of the monitoring that I'm trying to do is pretty key. And you know what? Sometimes you just have to be realistic because if putting the monitoring on is making the child worse, take it off and go with your clinical eyeball examination because that will give you that level of concern. I certainly remember the wee two and a half year old who had marked wheeze, marked recession, and you're absolutely right, they do not like nebulizer masks. And so we managed with dad holding it near the face. And you know what? That's okay. The child settled and managed to drift off to sleep after having been really distressed and really working hard. And the, the rate of breathing improved. So again, we don't want to force things on just because what we want to do is relate it to, right, will this change my management? What is going to improve things for this child? And being realistic with it. I'm not sure it does anything for my tachycardia when there's uh, buckets of salbutamol floating around in the room. <laughs> well, true enough. <laughs> okay, so heading on to the circulatory side of things, being used to adult practice, this is normally where the badness hides. But in kids, it seems to be that they behave until, as you say, they lose that compensatory mechanism. And once the chest goes, the circulatory function goes pretty soon after. Definitely. And this is testament to their elastic vasculature that says, no, I'm going to maintain my blood pressure until they can no longer do so and their compensatory systems fail. And this is where we need to not allow them to become hypotensive because we know that children do not tolerate hypotension well at all. So it is about that what do I think is going on? Do I think that this is overwhelming infection? Has it come on rapidly? And then do we need to start fluids? And part of that will also be how much fluids have they been taken up to this point? And then it is very much about ascertaining that fluid balance. So what is their heart rate doing? And very much a, a central capillary refill time will give us that marker of perfusion because I would challenge many of you to have pediatric blood pressure cuffs to the right size in your daily practice. Now, some ambulance units may have them, but again, it's one of those difficult ones. Your heart rate and capillary refill will give you that good marker of perfusion. Putting that into context with the colour of the child, are they pale mottled? 
what are the peripheries doing? So are they cool in the periphery? So in their hands, in their feet, where do they become warm? Are there other signs that they're shutting down? And those are ones that you want to be thinking, no, I need to fluid challenge these people. You know, if they're not managing the oral fluids, which is, of course, the ideal. Do I need to give them intravenous? Or if they are more unwell, do I need to think about interosseous? And again, it's about that preparation thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I heading on this pathway? And if you are thinking that you're heading towards that, do I have the skills or where are the skills that I can access to allow me to do that? And certainly, as you'll be aware with the updating of the guidelines, we are now looking at treating with 10 milliliter per kilogram fluid boluses to see about improving that circulation state because we want to avoid hypotension as much as much as possible. We also then want to be thinking if we're having to give repeated boluses about the next steps and that's maybe beyond the pre-hospital stage but this is going to be your discussion with the retrieval team especially for those of you that are a bit more remote and rural because again we're going to then look at our next agents that we can add in do we need to do some vasopressors or isoprenaline or adrenaline what are we going to need to support this child's circulation so that we don't get the multi-organ failure which is of course the big concern Certainly, there's so much evidence on asepsis and indicators for that. And interestingly, one of the ones that we really need to keep in our mind and be aware of is unexplained leg pain. And again, there's, there's lots of theories behind that. But thinking about that kind of hypercoagulability state, that isolated thigh pain, that there's no injury, there's no reason for it. Just keep that in your mind as could this be that process that could suggest that this is developing into a sepsis picture. And as you will remember, it's your three in, three out. So we want to get our antibiotics in, our fluids in, our oxygen in. And we want to think about pre-hospital. We may not be taking blood cultures. It might be something that you can do, but we want to measure urine output. And that is, again, part of our fluid balance status. So in our very young children, how many wet nappies are they having? In our older child, you know, how often have they been to the toilet? And again, more probably for the hospital because we don't have any way to measure it pre-hospital is kind of lactate level. It's interesting thinking that hypotension is the big enemy here, and that chimes with adult sepsis as well as paediatric sepsis. And, and it almost seems counterintuitive not to be measuring a blood pressure when, we, when we're worried about hypotension. But it, it's amazing how liberating it is, not having to worry about the specific numbers, but actually just spending a little bit more time really digging into that clinical presentation, using the back of the hand, feeling for that transition point of cold to warm as you go up the limb. And actually, equally seeing it reverse when you give some treatment, when you give them that fluid bolus and watch them reperfusing an area of tissue that was previously pretty shut down. It can be quite remarkable to kind of see that. And also, of course, you know, the other effects of circulatory compromise. So level of consciousness is in there as well. And it's certainly the same as in the adults with the news too. You've got the new onset confusion. You can get the kind of the agitation and such like with the children. Although for your younger children, that can sometimes be difficult to ascertain. And it's looking for that irritability. It's looking for that non-consolable, those other markers 
to suggest that there is this perfusion problem, which absolutely that we can then start to reverse and start getting that circulation back, which does make a huge difference. Hopefully lifting that level of consciousness and, as you say, um, signs that, that they are starting to perfuse and pink up and get nice colour back. So one thing that 10 millilitres per kilogram is reasonably hardwired in. But one thing that I've never had completely nailed down is, you know, I've given my aliquot of fluid. At what point is it sensible to go back and give another squirt of fluid? That's an, a very good question. And it's going to depend on the child in front of you. So what we want to do is we want to try and replace the fluid loss from the process that's going on. So why has this happened? Is it because of sepsis? In which case, you're probably going to repeat that quite quickly to try and continue that improvement in the parameters. So looking at that respiratory rate, heart rate, cap refill, the whole spectrum of levels. If it's somebody with gastroenteritis, then you might give one fast bolus and then give some maintenance fluids following that. Again, trying to gauge how much they've lost so that you can get that balance and keep a good chart. So do keep a very meticulous record of how much fluids that's been given. Because again, what we want to do is be giving up to a maximum of 60 ml per kilogram. And after that, we should be looking at other agents. So hopefully we'll give that first bolus, we'll see the response to that. If we've got a partial response, we're going to repeat that pretty quickly. If we've got a really good response, then we might just go a bit slower with the next bolus. And that's okay, because again, we can change that. It's constant reassessment, because by the time we've started fluids, we've decided that this child is going somewhere else, and we're going to try and get them to that paediatric unit as soon as we possibly can. It's interesting in terms of a, a mindset change because measuring out your careful aliquot of fluid is one thing but actually having in the back of your mind that you could potentially give five to six of these fluid boluses during that initial resuscitation phase before you're starting to move to vasopressors it gives you the kind of scope of how far you can go i think in the past i've been concerned maybe given a bolus maybe a couple of boluses but but being pretty twitchy about going much beyond that but Mm -hmm. it seems that what you're saying in that septic kid actually you can be cautiously liberal with the fluids absolutely and i think that's why it's that reassessment after each aliquot to see is things still getting better because what of course we've got to be really careful about is that underlying kind of cardiac or renal disease so we're keeping that in our back of our mind because then we're going to go be a bit more cautious with those children but otherwise what we found and certainly looking at the studies especially with related to kind of meningitis and other traditional kind of overwhelming infection pictures that we are a bit cautious as you quite rightly said and so we need to be relatively aggressive so it is about being sensible but so long as we reassess and things are improving and we know the what we think is going on again you can always have that discussion but yeah absolutely that is the current recommendation so uh, that's kind of the the circulation piece covered in terms of disability ordinarily i would be reaching for pupils glucose and a av poo or av for poo or how we're supposed to integrate confusion <laughs> into the process and it seems that you could pretty much do that with a kid definitely so i would keep it the same i would challenge you to do a pediatric gcs it's definitely needs a form in front of you but yet yeah, you know your aquapoo or however you would like to pronounce it is 
totally applicable to children. And again, it's going to be age appropriate. So it's going to be do they smile appropriately? And you can get that feel for the child as to where they are on that spectrum. Absolutely want to check about pupils and never forget glucose. The other thing that you can add in, which again helps partly with the circulation, is thinking about the fontanelle. So other things that give you a window into their circulation state and again is it bulging to again suggest is there signs of a meningitis picture the other thing of course you're wanting to take into consideration there is that tone and posture to give you that idea of are they very tense and rigid are they very floppy where are they sitting on that spectrum? And, and that will add to your bigger picture as to your level of concern. So a few extra things to think about in there. And I guess it, it does kind of lead us nicely into that E, catch-all of environment, exposure, everything else, and whatever else you can think of that starts with E. And at this point, hopefully your kid has been well exposed. I guess yeah. we do need to think quite carefully about temperature management here. That's it. And again, we always refer back to those very young children that find it very difficult to temperature regulate. But it is so important that we remember and check all sides of the child, including the back. And certainly when looking for things like meningitis and thinking about that purpuric rash that can develop. I still remember back to my first case that I encountered and it was between the toes that the rash had developed thinking again logically and you know those capillary beds it makes sense that it would be in the peripheries that that these could start so looking for that pupuric rash you know have they got some spots have they multiplied and certainly with the, the child that I've got in my head who sticks with you it was a case of developing before your eyes so when you're doing your reassessment just check again if you have spotted any spots forgive the pun so it is looking for that and looking for anything else that's going on there, anything that is concerning you elsewhere on this child. And thinking about the bigger picture, we're also, as part of that, looking for any unexplained bruising or anything that kind of makes you that little bit worried that you need to investigate that bit further. Fine. So that walks us through that assessment process. And I guess during the course of that, you're also going to collect all the information you're going to need to make yourself a PUSE score, which can then form the basis of your reassessment. Absolutely. And I think that that is the thing that, that is so important because it's about having that universal language. Because what you've got to decide with this person in front of you is does what I have found fit with a condition that I can treat, that I can do something for and is appropriate? Thinking again about our nice traffic lights, if you remember from Child with Fever, and therefore, can we manage this child in the community, in the home? Or are we at the stage where we think that either at this moment in time or that in the near future, they're going to need hospital admission, referral to paediatrics, what are we going to do with, with this person? And having that early warning score will allow you to have that uh, documentation for colleagues who follow you who may review this child or also with the referring team to be able to explain where your concerns lie. And again, as part of your SBAR handover or ATMIST handover that you can give in a 
structured fashion your findings from your examination. So it helps with that decision making process there. I was going to say it does act as quite a nice opener for a conversation when you say, you know, I'm about to send a kid to you who's got a pews of nine or a pews of 11 or it helps to focus the mind person who's receiving the referral. I'll find it very hard to say no to that. <laughs> so it's quite nice. It's one of those things. It's very much like the headline act. It's like, OK, yeah, I'm going to pay attention now. And again, you would then go with what's going on, explain the background and then arrange that transfer by the appropriate modality. And again, if you are looking at that use of eight or nine, then you are probably thinking, right, do I get a blue light ambulance? Do I need a helimed resource? Do I need to get a retrieval team? And a lot of that will absolutely depend on your location to a paediatric unit or further support. And I guess it's worth just touching on those kind of phone a friend options. So obviously, my routine go to is the trauma desk purely because I get a clinician that should understand roughly where I'm at and what might be available. And Scott Starr have got some pretty evolved paediatric responses as well. To be fair, they are fantastic and so helpful as well, even if it is, I'm not sure if this child needs transfer, I'm not sure where I'm at, and they are a wealth of resource and will happily discuss the child with you and logically say, right, well, what are our options and come up with a a sensible solution about the urgency of transfer and the correct end point. And certainly on the islands, they will come out to retrieve children. And they are, as I say, somewhere that's really useful. But also just remember your local paediatrician or emergency department who are there and who are available for support as well. As you remember, Karen, we've been getting all of our presenters to give us three top tips. What are your thoughts about takeaways for people looking after the deteriorating kid? So I think my takeaway is remembering that you are assessing a point in time. And so you can say how the child is at this point in time. Be very aware of where they've been and where you think they're going with the examination that you've performed. And certainly if you are thinking that this child is well enough to go home with whatever treatment you recommend, I always like to coach the family on why I think that's okay and what I would be looking for so that they can be part of that decision-making process so that they can know what it is that they're looking out for in their child and again, supporting them in how to access healthcare if things were to change and that way that they are better informed and educated because parents get worried and they want to do the best for their child. So it is absolutely about those things. Fantastic. Karen, that's brilliant. It gives us a really nice structure and and walk through your thought process. And hopefully I hear some of those words in my head next time I'm responding to a treble nine for a kid. Delighted. Thanks, Dave, for having me. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.